Welcome to you all, glad you're here, and I understand this is the one that goes live to millions of viewers out in, in the public sphere, right? So uh, just a reminder to everybody that the camera adds 10 pounds. And I believe they're shooting me with three cameras, so there we go. Um, people just haven't seen my face in so long, it's just terrible, other than maybe on a Zoom call. So many, many reasons to be thankful that I'm here and uh, out of the house. So John Tarek, as uh, Jason said, from uh, Palm City, hour and 20 minutes south, Executive Director of Operations for your denomination, a denomination that now has 408 churches that we brought in from uh, all around the country, and that's uh, since 2012. You came in as church number two, that's right, the second church into ECO, 2012, and here we are, 408 churches later, and it's pretty exciting. So happy anniversary in some respects uh, to you all, but uh, always good to be here with the, the number two church in our entire denomination. Uh, church in Tacoma came in a couple days before, but it was, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, let's see. We, uh, you know, things are different today. I don't know if I have to tell you that. Things are uh, harder today. Ministry is tougher today. I think that when we go through the text today and we talk about what's going on and, and how we can do ministry today, ministry is tougher, I think, today than at any other time. Certainly in our lifetimes, at least, anyway. So we'll cover that in a minute. And I'll say in full disclosure that I wrote this before COVID, but when we talked about some of the issues and I looked at this sermon and I said, gosh, everything has come to fruition, what I thought would, and even worse, maybe 10 times as worse as uh, when I wrote it just before uh, COVID time. So let's look at our text today. We are going to uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 in the ESV has a little caption on the top. It says, the fellowship of the believers. And the text is this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So I'll say this, thankfully, um, during the COVID time, I don't know if you know this, but the Hallmark Channel is running all their Christmas movies now, in July, and it's uh, wonderful. My wife is thrilled, you know. By the way, all the movies are the same, the same ending. They all follow the same plot, but nevertheless, I've watched more than a few, and it just reminded me that uh, Christmas is, well, it's right around the corner. It's several months away, but I'm ready to put the tree up now, I'll be honest. I think, let's get on with this, let's get to Christmas already, but I, it reminded me of a passage that we always talk about in Advent, and uh, when we think about it in John uh, chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14, in uh, the ESV, we just know this, it's uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Well, Eugene Peterson in the message looks at this passage a different way. He said, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I thought, yeah, that is amazing. But what would Jesus see in our neighborhoods today? We'll get back to that. Shortly after the, the national gathering in 2019, we had that in Colorado Springs, which is a very cold place in January, by the way, for a Floridian for sure. Um, 
we were coming back, and we do this every year around that time, around February, we send our churches this form. It's called the Ministry Information Form, and it's a way for us to gather information. How are we doing? What's the worship attendance? What, how's your church doing? And, and I sent this out uh, in 19, got a church in California, one of our larger churches, called me back and said, hey, John, what do we do for our, to count our online worshipers? And I really hadn't thought about that at the time. I mean, here, this is, again, pre-COVID, but what do we say about online worshipers? Maybe we should put a little space in the form to register that. Maybe we should just count them in regular worship attendance. I mean, they're singing, they're praying, they're listening, we think, at home, you know, just following along. Of course, on the Lord's Supper, we have to really think about that. How does that all work? And then and part of me said, well, maybe we shouldn't count them as worship attenders, just not knowing how this all works. And to me, it's still a very deep question, especially now. I've heard so many statistics from our churches when they look at the numbers that they're reaching their online presentations, and honestly, I don't know what to make of those numbers. You know, some churches are saying we're reaching five times as many people by going online and having people interact that way. I don't know if that information is properly vetted. I don't know if it's one person clicking on several times back and forth or how that all comes to be. I just don't know. But what I do know is that before COVID, the average person went to church 1.6 times a month. That was considered average worship attendance, and that has decreased over time, as you might imagine. And I'm not sure if they're counting online worship in that figure. So what are we to think about being somewhere in person or to follow along with the digital tools that have been given to us, as so many are, even this day? It's all so new. Now think about this. This device here, this iPhone, came out in 2007. Now, this isn't the one from 2007. There's been how many iterations, but came out June 29th, 2007. Now, of course, some of us business folks, I was on Wall Street at the time in the early 2000s when the BlackBerry came out, and we used that often for emails on the go, and that changed our world dramatically. But the iPhone was different. It was different because Facebook was out in February 2004. Twitter was out in March of 2006, and our world has literally not been the same since. And that's only 13 years we're talking about with the iPhone. I mean, somebody asked me what, what it was like 15 years ago. For some reason, I go all the way back to the 90s. I turned 50 this year, and all the decades are mixing together. But anyway, it is, uh, it's really very recent where this device has come into our lives. And it does everything for us. I mean, it navigated me here, telling me where the police were hiding out also. But if I did get a speeding ticket, I would be able to show proof of insurance on my phone. I could get a restaurant uh, reservation just by the click of a button. I could get weather data, you know, that if a storm's coming or not, what the hurricanes are doing. Sports scores, you name it, everything. The other day, I used it to actually make a phone call, which is the first time I've done that in probably a week and a half. It's really unique what this thing can do for us. And it might be the least thing I actually do is to connect by voice. Now, I travel a lot for eco. Typically, I'm in the air about 125,000 miles a year. And I haven't been in the air since March 15th, and my family just wants this thing to be over, I'm sure. But <laughs> nevertheless, uh, when I go, I have this habit or hobby of people watching. And I encourage you to do this when we're allowed to actually get out more frequently. But if you're in an airport, or a restaurant, or even worse, a doctor's office or a dentist's office, which I think you could still do today. What is it that you see people doing? They're not talking with each other. They're just glued to this thing. I mean, they're literally just in this device the whole time. 
Now, I have friends that have done my kind of travel back in the day when they were flying the airways and, and when they would get to the airport, you're talking about 15, 16, even 20 years ago, they would go and um, there'd be payphone banks in the airport and they'd have to call their loved ones, say, I made it safely, but then they were off the grid for a week, you know, just not connecting, just doing their work and then getting back on the plane, calling from the airport. Home they are again. It's fascinating because now we're more connected than ever. Me and my thousand Facebook friends, Twitter followers, Instagram people, I'm connected all over the world, literally, with people from all areas, all walks of life. And I think to myself, wow, what an amazing community. Or is it? Or is it? The statistics all point out that we're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And this was before COVID. Now, how is this possible? I already pointed out that we're so connected, more than ever, but we're also experiencing the highest rates of depression, opioid addiction, and suicide than ever before. Again, this is pre-COVID. I guarantee you it's a lot worse because of this. One week, uh, again, before COVID, they, people sent me, three different people sent me articles on this issue of loneliness. People are finally at least taking notice. So what's happening? And if we look across the spectrum of community organizations as well, maybe some of you were in Rotary or Kiwanis or Lions Clubs, you know, you use sports leagues, adult bowling leagues, definitely private golf club memberships, as we see in Florida, and certainly churches. You look at scouting groups as well. We're all seeing less and less engagement in them. And the population didn't decrease, although even that is changing now with the birth rates at their lowest level in 32 years. But we'll see what this pandemic actually does to those numbers. You know, we'll see. But uh, let this number sink in. 25% of people, one in every four people, say that they have not one person they can talk to to share about important matters. Not one person they could share life's joys and burdens. No one that they could talk to about these things. Now that's in stark contrast to the picture we just read about just after Pentecost and Jesus had ascended. So I grew up in the 70s, and I know everybody's telling these stories. I've walked to school both ways, barefoot in the snow. Uh, but in the Northeast, in the summertime, I was out from sunup and came home at sundown. That's the way we played. That's the way we interacted as kids in New York, and uh, video games really didn't come around until I think I was about nine or so when Atari came out, and, and that didn't change things too much. We did play some of those games and then also still go outside to do what we were going to do. But now when kids get together and play, they're playing video games, different games, and sitting next to each other. They're playing alone together. And that's not my research. It comes from a, a book that Robert Putnam did uh, called Bowling Alone. And as I mentioned before, bowling league participation has been on the decline, and this has been since the 90s. But interestingly, point, Putnam points out that overall there were more people bowling in the 90s than previously. They just weren't doing, doing it together. They were enjoying it by themselves. And today we have a loneliness epidemic. Recently, I read a great book called Them by Senator Ben Sass, and I recommend it highly to anyone curious as how the tech issues are affecting us as a society, and there are many good books continuing to be written about this. But he addresses all these cultural changes as well, and I think that the point he makes, the biggest point I take away from that book is that we have had this long trend in our society that we're becoming less and less neighborly, less and less neighborly. So the first chapter of his book 
it tells the story of the heat wave of 1995 and its effect on the city of Chicago. Now, for a full week, the city was hit with temperatures over 100 degrees with lows in the 80s. Now, I know for us Floridians, we know how to deal with the heat, but when you travel around and you go elsewhere, you, you see how people experience heat a lot differently. I was in Las Vegas two years ago on a summer vacation. I took my family there because I'm a real good parent. And um, we would go into the Grand Canyon, so it was okay. We just flew in there and had to get there. But anyway, we get there. It's 114 degrees in Las Vegas. And, uh, well, it's a dry heat, though, right? So, uh, but so is an oven, right? So, um, so we get there, and I thought we, we'd die. I mean, it was so hot. It just takes your breath away. And so you go to Chicago to have uh, experience temperatures like this for a week. It's really bad. Some had air conditioning. Some didn't. Those that did ran it so much that it affected the power grid and power went out in areas. So now we're starting to have a problem. Heat exhaustion setting in, hospitals and unfortunately morgues were having to deal with overpopulation. Now at first, uh, SAS says that the death toll was reported to be 465, but that was before bodies had, were found several days after in homes and apartments. The death toll at the end was 739 people. That story didn't get much press, believe it or not. I don't remember hearing about the story until I read the book. But how is this possible? It's a very big story from a sociological standpoint because Chicago's a big city. 2.8 million people were living there at the time of this heat wave. How can so many people have died unknowingly to their neighbors? And there was a study done on this event. And interestingly, the results of the study didn't point to differences in social class, race, or crime rates, or any of the typical data we hear about when we talk about cities today. The study said that places with the lowest death rate were neighborhoods with the tightest relationships among the neighbors. People in those communities knew who was at risk and made sure they took care of them. But what about the other neighborhoods? Something was wrong. Something has changed. Now, you, look at, you can look at sociological studies through the decades and really pointing back to the late 60s, start identifying trends that were just starting to emerge, and depending upon your age, you can maybe track how these trends have affected your own lives and your own lifetime. You know, the trend of the broken family and single-parent households, education, what teachers could and couldn't do to, to discipline children, and the more hot-button issues of today's news when we talk about marriage and, and abortion and those things like that. So many cultural, societal changes so quickly. And who knows what the lasting impact of this pandemic will be in our society, but there will be one. When we look at our neighborhoods today, I want us to look closely. You know, for us Floridians, hurricanes usually bring out the best in us when it comes to being neighbors. If someone needs a hand putting up shutters, it gets done. After the storm, when they're, uh, we're there for each other to help remove trees or other debris that might be need moving before the experts come and do all the heavy lifting. But we do support each other in the immediacy of the event. But what about other times? How does your neighborhood work? Are we the people that drive into the garage and have the door come down before we actually get out of the car so we don't have to interact with our neighbor at all? Now I realize it's different today because we're told that we have to keep our distance from our neighbor, right? Social distancing. But there'll be a time when we're past this, God, I hope it's soon, that we'll be back talking to one another again face to face. We see the picture of community in these few short verses at the end of Acts chapter 2. 
And when you read it in this time and place that we are in historically, you kind of wonder if that could ever possibly happen again. Who lives this way? Now, I don't want that to be the message, that we're supposed to be living that way or else we're not following the Scriptures because I don't think that it's a hard and fast instruction for us because we're imperfect people, broken people that aren't going to achieve perfect community. But I think if we look at the Scripture in the context of Jesus' command to love God with our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, again, love our neighbor as ourselves, this passage is an obedience to that. And that's my single point today. Who knew a Presbyterian pastor with one point for a sermon? That's unheard of, but that's part of my point. We're going to have to start doing things differently in society, in our churches, maybe more importantly in our homes, to start building community. We have to practice radical hospitality, each and every one of us, so that relationships will form. Loneliness will start to decline, and people will come to know Jesus through the sharing of stories, the breaking of bread, and the lifestyle evangelism of us believers. The verses are numbered strangely, but if you look at verse 47, the statement that sticks out glaringly, they had favor with all the people. And one would say, for a time in this country, that was exactly the case. We called it Christendom. In the 50s, that seemed to be at a peak. Churches were sprouting up all over the country. The vast majority of the population were Christians. Now, that time does not exist anymore. And in fact, we could argue that when we did have that particular majority culture, we squandered it because we are a fallen people. Scandals made the headlines, and people lost trust with the institutional church. I get it. And we have to work hard to overcome the reputation that we received due to all the issues that have been created. So we are the minority culture, and I'm here to tell you that that's okay. The age of the common majority culture is over. Today we have so many pockets of people affiliated with this or that, or different likes and dislikes, so many choices for people to have an affinity towards. And just as an, as an example, also from the book Them, 1951, I was a small boy, the television show I Love Lucy debuted. The viewing audience, more than two-thirds of the nation tuned in for a television show. Two-thirds of the nation. That's incredible when you think about it. Now, in today's terms, for example, I know many people that watched this show Game of Thrones, and the series ended what, about a year and a half ago or something like that, the season finale or the, the, the series finale, you would think by talking to people that this is the most watched television show in history. But in actual fact, that it garnered 4% of the population. 4%. Cable news is another example. So we have two competing, you know, several competing networks, but when you think about the shows that, that really garner the most attention, uh, by viewing audience, this Hannity show on Fox has the largest 1% of the nation. The next highest, uh, Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC, 0.88% of the nation. But you wouldn't think that based on uh, conversations and based on what's going on in the world today, you would think that they have such an impact on how we view things. So I'm actually excited that fewer people watch these shows than I think. And none of it is a majority group. So now, too, we are a minority group. And we have to work hard to gain the favor of the people. We have to work hard to gain the favor with the people. So that gets back to hospitality and loving our neighbor. The words preceding the part about having favor with all the people are glad and generous hearts. 
This is the reflection of the attitude of the believer. They had favor with all the people, and they had glad and generous hearts. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. The way we present ourselves, the way we approach the day, the way we approach problems, both ours and our friends and our family's problems, the way we approach people in general says a lot about who we are as believers, the way we approach social media or discussion about different issues of what to do or what not to do. The entire chapter of Acts 2, thankfully, is the work of the Holy Spirit. We can agree on that. From the gathering in the upper room, the arrival of the Spirit in rather dramatic fashion, to Peter addressing the crowd that had gathered, and people hearing the gospel in their native language, people being cut to the heart from his words and then becoming believers. That's the work of the Spirit. They were transformed by that power, and we know that this can be done again. We know this. The Spirit working within us to affect the process. Part of loving our neighbor is to be glad and generous of, of all people. Of all people, those who are imitating Christ should be the most glad and generous of all the people. And that's how you build favor. Continuing to work backwards through the passage, we see the believers are breaking bread together in their homes. Breaking bread together in their homes, an act of generosity and gladness. Having people over for dinner or lunch, having time to connect with one another over food, and explore how we are bonded in the same community. Sharing stories of life and listening to one another's praises and tribulations. Something about eating together that brings it all home. And, let, and I will say that, obviously, we can't do that now, can we, right? But when we do have that time to go out and do it again, we're going to have to make an effort to do it. So we can't do it with friends or family, and, we, and I'm also talking about non-believers, too having dinner with folks who disagree with us on various things. This is where we are today. All the signs are pointing to it. We, the church, need to be leaders in this effort to restore community in a time that is desperately trying to separate us into a people who are afraid to get to know our neighbor because they can be part of a subcategory that thinks differently on any number of different subjects than we do. I go to Brazil fairly often. I was going to Brazil before covid and my purpose there was to find some church planters who would come back and plant churches here in Florida and across the country to Brazilian immigrant populations that had settled there. And I love going to Brazil. You see hospitality practice at a different level, much different level than we do here. Now, I will say this, that their politics is just as bad as ours. And they can argue about football, soccer, more than anybody I've ever seen and really get into tense arguments about who the best team is in the nation. But at the end of the day, they're hugging one another, giving each other a kiss, and just being so thankful that they could spend time together over food and just have the hospitality of one another and connect. I've never seen anything like it. As a mild extrovert, it is simply exhausting because they just constantly want to be together. But coincidentally, the evangelical church is on the rise in Brazil. And I don't think that that's for many other reason that they can connect and do these things in a way radically different than we do. And they're experiencing the same COVID issues as we are, so they are suffering now just as well as us. But they know how to do it. They yearn to be together. Now, truly loving your neighbor, building community, is going to take all of our efforts, getting out of our comfort zone, breaking bread with people who disagree with us, all in the hopes that the Spirit will turn hearts to Him. Is it worth it? Not only is it worth it, it's our obligation 
It's our obligation. The age of technology, while supposedly connecting us together, is actually driving us apart, I would argue. It's my prayer that we can all look to the early church, the people of Acts 2, and learn from that past because I believe it's also the future, certainly the future of the church. Building community in your neighborhoods, face-to-face, being neighborly again, not just on the computer, but by getting out, listening to the stories of your neighbor and becoming friends. This time will pass. We will be able to do that again. I pray that we can get to it real soon. But it's going to take effort. I'm going to close with this story that I read. It came from a Missouri newspaper. Somebody sent it to me. It's a story of a 90-year-old woman that I read about. And um, the news story was very telling to me. It was telling in the sense that the angle the news agency played was not what I thought it should have been. The woman was living in a neighborhood. Everyone in her household had either moved away or died. She was totally alone. She had no friends. Finally, she had enough courage, I guess we'll call it, to write a letter to her next-door neighbor, a younger woman uh, with a family. Mrs. So-and-so, would you consider to become my friend? I'm 90 years old, live alone. All my friends have passed away. I'm so lonesome and scared. Please, I pray for somebody, said the letter. And the news agency made it to be like this hero story. Thank goodness the neighbor actually responded to the letter and went over and talked to the woman, and now they're friends. But I asked this question, why in the world does she have to write that letter? In a Christian community, this should never happen. With believers around, this should never happen. If we do not know the person living next door to us and what their story is and how they are being affected by everything that's going on, then we are not doing our job. We are not being very Christian at all. To make the story as like some sort of heroic effort by the next-door neighbor to actually respond to this letter, I think just misses the point. We have to get back. We have to lead the way in being friendly, being friends with people, regardless if they disagree with us on a number of issues. That's the future. That's how we're going to rebuild the kingdom. That's how we're going to have to get after it. I pray we're at least to do that soon. I pray for you as you go about doing it. But we're going to have to do something different if we're going to see people come to Christ. In Jesus' name.